0: You're welcome to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15. That's the passage we'll be in today. It's on page 901 in your blue pew Bible. We'll be in John 15 as we continue in our little sermon series this fall on mission. I've written a little bit about it as you may know already on page six in your bulletin. If you want to figure out what we've been talking about this fall, we've looked the last two weeks at how Jesus' mission involves bringing new life by the new birth. This week, we turn to how Jesus' mission involves fostering a new people that you'll see have to live by a very new type of power. And before I start, I just, I had this thought in my mind that there are people that God knows by name um, that do not know him right now that he's going to invite into his eternal kingdom. And part of the way he's gonna do that is by what he stirs in your soul through this sermon. So listen attentively, because God is at work in ways we could hardly imagine. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you um, that your word runs forth into the earth and it doesn't return void. I thank you, Lord, that, that your sheep know you by name. And that through people in this room, you will speak to them and they will hear and they will come into your fold and find rest and life. And Jesus, I just do ask now that you would gently tend this flock, myself included, teaching us by your word how to be your people. We pray this in your name. Amen. When you listen to business leaders, or business entrepreneurs talk about the keys to success. Maybe you listen on a podcast or you read something like the Harvard Business Review. Uh, maybe you're a business leader yourself and you've lectured on this, but when you listen to business entrepreneurs talk about what makes for success, you'll notice that it's not just having the right idea and the right vision. Success also requires having the right people. Because you see, it's people at the end of the day who enact the vision, who implement it, who carry it out. Success, missional success, depends not just on plans and vision. It depends on people. Now, surprisingly, God has set up his mission the same way. It depends on people, mere mortals like you and me. I don't know why he did it that way. I don't know why he didn't just use angels or continue to come himself. But as we've seen this fall... The mission of God begins with God sending the Son into the world with a very specific mission that culminates in Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus then turns to his followers and he sends them to further the same mission. He says twice in John's gospel, as the Father sent me, so now I send you. The point, these people, this ragamuffin bunch of sinful disciples, these 12 are going to carry out a mission upon which the future of the world depends. That's a lot of pressure. It almost broke the disciples. They were not built for it. But in, in God's plan, The disciples being thrust into this mission in such a way that exposed their weakness actually taught them to use their weakness as their advantage, as they learned through their weakness to depend on a power not their own, a power which Jesus says at the end of Luke's gospel, a power from on high. And so it's the same today. It's us. I don't know why God does it that way. But he's determined that his mission depends at least in part on people. It will be carried out by people. And so as we continue thinking about the mission of God, the question I want to ask today is not so much about God's plan. He does want to bring people into his kingdom. He wants to bring good. It's not so much about his ultimate vision to bring glory to himself. It has to do with what you might say, power. This is a sermon about power. How do you become empowered to fulfill the mission of God? I mean, a lot is riding on us, if you really think about it. Jesus is sending us. So how do we become empowered to fulfill a divine mission? Well, we find some answers to this, how we become empowered for Jesus' mission. In John 15, John 15, one through seven, is a relatively well-known passage in the Bible. Um, If you're new to Christianity, um, a lot of Christians who have been around a while have spent a lot of time in this passage. Jesus gives a wonderful image to help understand how to relate to him. He says, I'm the true vine, you're the branches. I'm the vine, You abide in me like a branch. This was a very common image in his day in a farming community like the first century Mediterranean world. It still is the case in the Mediterranean world that a lot of people have vines that grow grapes. People could have pictured this immediately in their mind. Maybe they were in a grape, right by a grapevine when Jesus taught this. Jesus probably, however, has on his mind instances in the Old Testament When God referred to his people Israel as his vine, he spoke of drawing his vine out of Egypt, planting it in the promised land, and more often than not, when God talks about his vine in the Old Testament, he's lamenting the fact that Israel, his vine had not been more fruitful. So Jesus comes in and says something which is is pretty ostentatious unless it's true. And if you have ears to hear in the first century, and Jesus comes out of the gate, verse one, I'm the true vine, underline true. I'm the true vine, not ethnic Israel. Meaning, to be connected to God now, you can be a Gentile or a Jew, but it all flows through me. Now, Christians have turned to this passage in John 15, often for one of two reasons. One, they've turned to it because it's great for advice for how to be close to Jesus. And don't you want to be close to Jesus? So you go to this. I want to abide in Jesus. That's what this is all about. How do I do it? Well, from this passage, you know, you abide by being in the word. You abide by prayer. They want to learn how to abide. Or they go to it because they want to be comforted This is an amazing passage because it says Jesus wants you to dwell in him and he in you and he wants his love to be in you. It's very comforting. These are great reasons. To go to this passage for personal comfort is great. It's just that that's not the main point of it. The main point of this passage is about missional fruitfulness. Seven times... Between verses 1 and 17, Jesus uses the phrase, bear fruit. Bear fruit, bear much fruit, bear fruit that will last. What John 15 is about is the fact that Jesus... Speaking on the last night before he's crucified is preparing his disciples for their mission that will happen after he's resurrected and ascended and he's saying I want you to be fruitful comforted yes intimate with me yes but you are to go and bear much fruit this is to the glory of my father It's a passage about empowerment Jesus makes it very blunt in verse 5 He says, this is a verse on the front of your bulletin, by the way, you should put it on your fridge. Jesus says in verse five, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. There's a lot of things we can do on our own. We, really could, we could build a building like this. You could hire really great speakers and musicians to get people to come. You could do service projects. But Jesus is saying, there is a type of fruit that unless it's from you abiding in me, you can't bring it about. And the fruit he's focusing on, we see this in verse 16, when he says at the end of verse 16, go and bear fruit that will abide, mean last He's talking about converts. He's talking about the fruit of more people coming to believe in him and be in his kingdom. And he's saying, friend, this fruit, this type of work, apart from me, you can do none of it. So here's here's how I would state the point of this passage. In two words, I would just say abiding empowers in a sentence, I would say, when it comes to fulfilling Jesus' mission, abiding empowers because the closer you are to Jesus, the closer he comes to the people you're around. Abiding in empowers, because it brings the presence of Jesus into wherever you are. Now, I just wanna unpack that. I I wanna look with you. How is it that abiding empowers? I hope you can see that by this point. Jesus says, abide in me so you can bear fruit. So abiding empowers for fruitful mission. How so? I'm gonna suggest three ways all from this passage. Number one, abiding empowers because abiding reveals the sender. Two, abiding empowers because it taps into a stronger strength. Three, abiding empowers because it fuels the heart. So first, abiding has something to do with a revelation, revealing the sender. Uh, John Stott was an Anglican clergyman and he was a writer and he loved missions and evangelism. And he knew that the the mission of God centered around people sharing the message, the good news in words about Jesus. But he also knew sharing this message implied messengers and that the messengers by their lifestyle could either help or hurt the message. And he tells a story, a sobering story about the then president of India who was also a Hindu philosopher, who had been around several Christians, groups of Christians that had been trying to evangelize him, convince him of the unique deity of Jesus Christ. And he said at one point, he said, you claim that Jesus Christ is your savior, but you do not appear to be more saved than anyone else. And from this, Stock concludes, we must exhibit what we proclaim. Part of the basic logic of the Christian mission is that the one who is sent images, looks like, reveals the sender. You see this with Jesus. Jesus is the sent one, the Father sends Jesus. And what does Jesus do when you look at him? He reveals the sender, he's quite clear about it. He says in John 12, 45, whoever sees me, sees the one who sent me. 14 verse nine, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. The sent one reveals the sender. Jesus expects the very same for his disciples. He expects that when people look at a Christian disciple, they would see something of the person of Christ. He says to the disciples in John 13, 35, love one another, and as you love one another, by how you love one another, people will know you're my disciple. Meaning, the way you act will begin to tip people off about who I am and your connection with me. So follow me here. That the sent one reveals the sender. But how exactly? Does Jesus reveal the Father by how he looks? Does he show up and say, see, you didn't know God had a beard, he also had brown hair. This is God. It's not mainly his physical appearance. Jesus reveals God by the full expression, dynamism, activity, acts, words, the fullness of his life. And you begin to see, as Jesus teaches in John, this is how a sent one reveals the sender, through a special oneness or closeness or abiding with The sender. So Jesus' closeness with the Father is what led to him literally speaking only the words he heard from the Father. So Jesus, if you hear Jesus' words, you hear God's words. And Jesus only did the works or acts that the Father did. Jesus says, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I'm doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The works I'm doing, the miracles I'm doing, they show you that I'm from the Father. He goes on. For I have not spoken by my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Here's what's happening. Jesus reveals the Father. How? He reveals the Father by closeness to the Father. How does he get so close? One way is that he listens so carefully to the Father's words that he only speaks what comes from the mouth of the Father. So his mouth becomes the Father's mouth. He's so submitted to the will of the Father, that he only does that which the Father does. Therefore, you watch Jesus working, you see the Father working. Oneness, through saturation in word, submission to will, it makes the sent one reveal the sender. And don't you see, this is the very instruction Jesus is giving his disciples. He's telling them to abide in him, meaning be close to him. And how are they supposed to go about this? Number one, they supposed to listen to his words. Verse seven, abide in me and my words abide in you. Same thing he does with his father, they do with him. Then he goes on in verse 10 and he says they're supposed to obey him. Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus is setting up the parallel relationships. I reveal the father by obeying him. You reveal the son by obeying Me, so here's the principle the closer you look at a sent one, the more you should come to see the sender. And look, we know this by general experience, right? That the more you spend time with someone, the more you act like them, right? A son who's around his father all the time becomes what a chip off the old block, spouses. Can start to finish one another's sentences close friends after a long trip together they think the same way they watch the same things they're convicted about the same ideas we become like what we are saturated in like what we're around this is a basic principle we all know by abiding in Jesus by saturating yourself in his word by bringing your life by his spirit into conformity to his will, obeying him, you begin to bear his image. You reveal him. Now, this is powerful. Let me tell you why it's powerful. It's powerful because the real power in the mission of God all comes from Jesus. And so when you are close to Jesus and you get close to someone else, you are effectively bringing Jesus close to them. And they see a revelation of him. Let me me show you how this works from an example in, in some really important literature. So there's a character in Russian literature called the Holy Fool. A holy fool is someone who is so abandoned to God that when they show up in the everyday world they look odd, even foolish. And even while people look at them as odd or foolish, there's something about them, this otherworldliness actually becomes something that draws others to them. They're foolish but in a way that's holy. Dostoevsky has a holy fool in most of his novels and in the Brothers Karamazov the holy fool is the youngest of the three brothers Alyosha Alyosha has been studying in a monastery he's a young man of god and his elder who is his tutor dies Father Zosima Alyosha through various events is spit out into the world he's young he's in his early 20s he's somewhat naive and a friend kind of a cruel friend, takes Eliosha, She wants to introduce him to the world, so he takes him to visit a young woman named Grushenka. Grushenka is a tease, and Grushenka exists to torment men with her charm, and she knows who Eliosha is because she's passed him on the street before while he was practicing to be a monk, and he wouldn't look at her, he would look down, and that bothered her. So she practices her charms on him, she comes and sits on his lap, and she, she can't get to him. And this leads her to begin to mock him and Eliosha's friend begins to mock him. You fool, you simpleton, you don't even know the ways of a man in a world. Look at you, pathetic. But then something happens. She realizes that Eliosha is actually seeing her not as an object, but as a person, and that he sees her as an object worthy to be loved. She hasn't been seen like that before. And suddenly in the scene, after mocking him, she collapses and dissolves into a pool of tears. She doesn't know what to do, reject the man or embrace him. This is what it's like to be encountered by a holy fool. On the one hand, the person is utterly foolish. On the other, you feel as though they are coming from a foreign land to which you have longed to go, clean and pure and safe, and you want them to take you there, but you feel shame at the same time as you feel drawn. Christian parents, you who reveal God through your families, you will raise your children unto godliness more so than to worldly accolades, and at times, because of this, you'll look foolish. Christian teenagers, Christian college students, you will live as best you can according to Jesus' plan for relationships and sexual behavior, and the world will call you a fool for it. They'll mock you. Christian philanthropist, you will give your money to things that look ridiculous to the world. The world will wonder why you don't spend these things on your own pleasure or mainly on temporal things. And all of us, when we take up our cross, we will look like fools who could have won but instead we're gonna lose. Just like Jesus did. He had every out he needed on trial with Pilate and he wouldn't take it. And he looked like a fool with a crown of thorns being spit on Getting a fake enthronement on a cross, he looked like a fool. And it was the most holy thing, it was the closest God's love had ever come to earth. So make no mistake, abiding is empowering because through closeness to Jesus, you bring Jesus closer to the world and the world will laugh at some of the aspects of that even while they long. They long to meet the eyes that are looking through yours at them. That's the first way abiding empowers. It empowers because those who are close to Jesus reveal Jesus. There's a second way abiding empowers, and that's through tapping in, like a branch taps into sap in a vine. It's through tapping in to a stronger strength. If you have tried to go on mission for Jesus, and and I mean, if you've ever gotten like into the center of the current where you said, I would like to see someone I love or someone in my life come to know Christ. I'm gonna pray for them, I'm gonna to try to witness to them. If you've ever done that, you, you will know that you run immediately into your lack of power. Like there's a lot of things you can do for Jesus in your own power, like service projects. So you don't really know if it was Jesus or you, because you're like, well, he could not be real and we probably could still do this. Doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. But when you get into evangelism, you, you hit this spiritual battle where without God, you can't do anything. Like Jesus says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it exposes immediately your impotence. You're not strong enough. Now, Paul says in Ephesians 6, St. Paul says, this is because in the mission of God, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This means that the people that we want to see come to Christ, their problem isn't just selfishness. Their problem is some complex reality called spiritual darkness. You know, I recently read a sermon by Francis Schaeffer called The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. You should go online and order it. It's great. The Lord's Work in the Lord's Way. And Schaefer's talking about this fact, that, that you can't win a spiritual battle in human strength. And he gives this little image. I thought it was so powerful. He says, what if a demon walks into your room and you have a metal sword, a huge, sharp short sword next to so You pick up the sword and you thrust it through the demon. Does it do anything? Nothing. Why? You can't win a spiritual battle with human tools this is why paul will go on in ephesians 6 he'll say take the sword of the spirit which is the word of god praying at all times so here's the second way abiding in powers one of the key ways you stay close to jesus is prayer jesus brings prayer up twice here um he he brings it up when he uses the word ask So in verse seven, verse 16, he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. He says the same thing in verse 16. This doesn't mean a blank check. This means as you're abiding in his word, you're beginning to want what he wants and you ask the father for it. But it's an image of praying. Abiding in powers because it's enacted through prayerfulness And when a saint really has to pray, when they really get down on their knees, they really get close to God, they really tap into the other power, the stronger strength. And you know why this is good news? Because one of the things that can happen in a town like Washington is we can make much of our own strength. Because like per capita on the earth, we're pretty high in terms of human ability. And that's actually not to our advantage in the mission of God, because we can lean too heavy in that direction. So you may be here and you may think, well, I don't know if I belong to the false Church because the people that lead there are really gifted, really good, you know, fancy degrees. And I want to tell you, I'm so sorry if that's your impression, because it couldn't be further from the truth in how God actually makes things work. You can be a giant in the kingdom of God if you pray. You don't need to know any Greek, any Hebrew. You can be bad at English and you can be a giant because of how you pray. You can wage war because of how you pray. Friends, is there anything, a missional thing the Lord has put on your heart, a burden, maybe a person you want to see come to know the Lord, maybe an adult child? Maybe you want to see a revival happen. Do you pray on this? Martin Luther said, there is no work like prayer. William Cooper, the hymnist, said Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. And you know, this interesting thing happens. As you begin to pray about the mission of God in a particular way, say you're praying for someone to meet Jesus, what you'll find is as you pray for them regularly, you're far more likely to actually share Jesus with them. It's funny, God starts to use you to answer your own prayer. And John Owens points out this principle. He says, he who prays as he ought will endeavor to live as he prays. Your life will flow out of your prayer life. And friends, let us not forget that Jesus, the true sent one, lived out his mission before the Father through prayer. If Jesus needed to pray on his knees, sweating blood in Gethsemane, if Jesus found he needed to pray for his disciples in John 17 so they wouldn't fail, surely, surely a key to empowerment on the mission of God is prayer. Abiding empowers, because as we abide, we learn to pray, we talk much to God. We go deep into the ear of God before we go very far into the world of men. That's the second way, abiding empowers. Third, and finally, abiding empowers because through it, we reveal Jesus to the world. It empowers because we draw strength from the vine. And thirdly, abiding empowers because it fuels the heart. In my own life, the most subtle but effective thing that undermines missional effectiveness for me is well, it's two things really: apathy and fear. By apathy, I mean indifference. There's times where I wake up on the wrong side of the bed or I have a lot of other things going on and I just simply am indifferent to the state of anybody's soul around me. Yeah, that part of the mission of God's not for me. You know, I I just don't care. I don't have feelings. I don't have a burden for the lost. Do you ever wake up like that? Or along with apathy, I have fear. Lord, today's not the day to do this. It's an awkward moment. I don't wanna share. Lord, there's other things that I've committed to do today and I'm afraid this isn't the best time. And what both these things, apathy and fear, have in common is they're a problem of the heart. They're a problem of the, of the motivational center, the affective center, the directional center that is the human heart. And you, you know, if you just observe human beings, that people don't, do all kinds of tricks to motivate their hearts. I mean, go to the gym. What if somebody, they walk into the gym, I don't wanna work out, then they blast some sort of techno music, and next thing you know, they're pumping the iron. Why? Because the music motivated their heart. Or people listen to motivational speeches, or kids in college, they put posters up of their heroes. Man, I'm gonna look at Beethoven before I go out to music class because I wanna work hard. You know, I wanna work hard like he did. You know, motivation just doesn't come for free. It's not easy. Now, there is a a part of abiding in John 15 that has to do with the heart. The word heart's not in here, but I want to show you this. It, it It all orbits around the word wish. You could circle that word if you wanted to. The word wish, which is there in verse seven. I'll tell you what this means. There's a connection in verse seven between abiding in Jesus, being saturated in Jesus' words, and what the heart suddenly wishes for If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Now, the word wish here is a Greek word that could also mean whatever you desire or whatever you will. What Jesus is saying is the closer you are to me, the more my word, saturates you the more awake your heart will become with a desire or a wish that will be so in alignment with me that when you ask the father you can have total confidence he will hear it but you see what this means abiding has just awakened the heart you don't wish from a dead heart a dead heart doesn't care so somehow abiding inflames the heart what gets your heart inflamed you know recently I watched a sports documentary on the Tampa Bay Buccaneers 2017 football team. Um, it's called Hard Knocks. And they were uh, spending a lot of time on their quarterback, Jameis Winston. Now, Jameis Winston, if you know, went to Florida State. I think he won a Heisman. Unbelievable talent. But he, he could be immature, kind of a knucklehead. And he, he wasn't always focused. He got in trouble off the field. And so one of the things the organization is doing in this film is they're trying to figure out how to get Winston focused in his heart. And so one of the things he does is he decides, I want to get up first. I'm going to get up before the rest of the team. I'm going to get into the film studio to watch film before anybody else. And I'm going to get in the weight room before anybody else. I'm going to get up at 5 a.m. So they show a scene where um, his alarm goes off at 5 a.m. Now, what's interesting is it doesn't just go off, you know, beep, beep, beep. He sets his alarm to go off with a motivational speaker. So the first thing he wakes up to is this insane guy basically screaming at him saying, stop just waking up like accident. What do you want? And once you find out what you want, spend the rest of your natural life waking up and going after it. And Jameson is up, he's out the door, he's into the film session. They show him lifting, it's still dark outside, no one's there. So whose voice, whose voice speaks to you First thing in the morning. It is said that John Stott, before he got out of bed in the morning, would pray this prayer, before his feet hit the ground. He would pray, good morning, Heavenly Father. Good morning, Lord Jesus. Good morning, Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, I worship you as the creator and sustainer of the universe. Lord Jesus, I worship you, Savior and Lord of the world. Holy Spirit, I worship you, sanctifier of the people of God. Heavenly Father, I pray that I may live this day in your presence more and more. Lord Jesus, I pray this day that I may take up my cross. Holy Spirit, I pray that this day you will fill me with yourself and cause your fruit to ripen in me. Then after speaking to God, he would get out of bed and it said that the next thing he would do is he would open God's word and ask God to speak to him. And he did all this, as you can tell by the prayer, to try to orient his heart to be on mission for God. You know, imagine you wake up in the morning. You have a million things on your mind. You're not feeling much passion about Jesus and his purposes. And you happen to open your Bible. It falls open to Matthew 28, verse 18. And through it, you hear Jesus literally say to you, go, Sam, go, go, and make disciples of all nations. And you say back, I have a lot to do today and I just, I just don't think I can be about that today. And you read on in verse 20, Jesus says, Sam, I am with you always, always to the end of the age. I'm with you always, including October 22nd, 2020. I'm with you right now. I know the number of hairs on your head. I know my father knows when a sparrow falls and not one sparrow falls outside of my father's will. Everything that's gonna happen to you today, I know. There's no accidents, no incidental people. I have ordered these things. You are in the theater of the sovereignty of God, Sam, and I am with you. Go, go. And you go. And you say, whatever happens, Lord, I'm trusting you that there's a lot more going on than meets my eye. Abiding empowers because the closer you are to Jesus, the closer he comes to others. Through abiding, we reveal him. Through abiding, we tap into his stronger power. Through abiding, our hearts begin to share his heart's very own passion. Let me leave you with a single word. It's the word friend. Did you see it in the passage? It's a wonderful way Jesus moves to conclude his teaching here. In verse 15, He says, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. There's something of the heart of the gospel in this little word. Jesus said before this, as the father loved me, so I have loved you. Do you know what this means, friend? It means that there was a point in time when you were the mission of God not a laborer in the mission of God, you were it. There was a time when you didn't know the Lord. And he he woke up other people on a Sunday morning, maybe your parents, maybe a friend, and he gave them a sermon like this because on his mind were you, your name, and he sent them to you. Why? Because he longed from time immortal before the foundations of the earth. He plotted the Father and the Son to make you and redeem you so that you could be of all things his friend. You're his friend. That's empowering. That's the gospel. That's the message we go and share. But don't go out without going deeply in. Lord God, we thank you um, that you are the vine, that we don't need to bring any power to your mission and that the most important thing we can do is lean into you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.